Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back for the third um, session in today's conference. Uh, my name is Scott Peterson. I am the Bingham Research Fellow in Constitutional Studies at Balliol College, uh, the inaugural one. And uh, it's really a pleasure this afternoon to introduce Ian McLean. Ian is a professor of politics in the Department of Politics and IR and is an official fellow of Nuffield College. He spent most of his career in Oxford following completion of his DPhil, which debunked what he called the legend of Red Clydeside. When I was thinking about one thing to say about Ian, and I think it's actually true of Dan as well, I think there may be a category of political scientists in our department that we could call forensic political scientists. <laughs> they find things that have gone wrong, point out the facts that make it, it impossible to reach any conclusion other than that something has gone wrong, and then go on and uh, do something different. Um, Ian's one of the UK's pioneers in social, science, social choice theory in its history. He's held posts at other UK universities, including the universities of Newcastle, Pontine, and Warwick, and visiting positions at American universities. He's a fellow of the British Academy, and it's vice president for public policy, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He served on the independent expert group on the finance for the Kalman Commission on Scottish Government. He's also vice chairman and a locomotive driver of the Welsh Pool and Landfair Light Railway. <laughs> <laughs> and he can regularly be heard singing even song with the cathedral singers at Christchurch Cathedral. So, and he's going to talk to us <coughs> about the UK Constitution. Uh, and I have just, for anybody who's in town tomorrow, been recruited as an emergency to do uh, Eucharist tomorrow morning at 11.15. <laughs> uh, Thank you very much, Scott. Um, I was given by uh, Jeremy, or we chose, a rather convoluted title for this session, <laughs> which I've now uh, boiled down slightly to uh, what you see on the screen. And that's still rather unwieldy, but it's intended to convey a sense of paradox about what I'm about to say. And the paradox is this, that some at least of the intellectual drive towards um, a more defensible view both of what the British Constitution is and of what it ought to be comes from Scots. Uh, it comes in particular, as I'm going to detail in a moment, from Scots saying, excuse me, that doesn't apply to Scotland. Excuse me, uh, we had an, a, a treaty and two acts of union in 1707 and they uh, it set certain conditions. Now, while all that is true, at least for another 10 months from now, it could cease to be true on the 19th of September next year if, uh, if Scotland votes for independence. So, in a sense, my whole enterprise this afternoon is paradoxical because I'm talking about pressures for codification, one of which comes from Scotland. If Scotland goes, do the pressures for codification go with it? I'm going to argue not. Of course, uh, others may take different views. Whether or not Scotland goes, uh, I want to show that the existence of Scotland and, above all, of the Treaty and Two Acts of Union of 1707 makes the classic account of British constitutionalism so incoherent that the wonder, if, to me, is that it lasted as long as it did. So. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, is there such a thing as a theory of the British Constitution? Um, if most of you uh, did PPE as undergraduates, you were unlikely to have come across, you may have come across uh, in, 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 in older cohorts, 
uh, constitutional history used to be taught, not constitutional theory. Uh, and for many, many decades, and I think culpably, political scientists were not interested in constitutions. That has changed. It's changed both as a matter of theory and as a matter of what empirical political scientists do to an understanding that constitutions do really matter. However, most of uh, what is studied as constitutional theory is, is indeed uh, emanates from lawyers in, in the UK, and that's also true of the USA. And of course, it is regularly taught in law schools, including this one. So if there are law graduates among you, um, uh, you will be very familiar with this stuff. However, uh, one of the things which drives me into this particular research area, I can illustrate by an anecdote. It was March, approximately, of 2010. The general election was in the offing, the British general election was in the offing, and the senior civil service chose, as we thought, that moment of all moments to hold what seemed to be a very strange conference at one of their grand country houses. Wilton Park in Sussex. And the theme of the conference was, in effect, codifying the British Constitution. And several of us political scientists, as well as academic lawyers, went along, as did practicing lawyers. And we all were puzzled as to why, in what were the known to be the last two months of the Labour government, which was known to have rather few chances of re-election, should anybody care? Uh, Prime Minister Brown, as some of you will remember, was quite keen on codification and on some constitutional matters, but he was clearly on the way out. Uh, why should the civil service care? Well, it turned out that they were smarter than we were because, as you all now know, we got a coalition government and a number of constitutional promises were in either the manifestos of the two parties or in the constitutional agreement, some of which have made progress and some have not. However, the anecdote is this, uh, that in discussion of comparative constitutionalism with extremely eminent people from other jurisdictions, there was a, uh, uh, I thought, very impressive South African constitutional judge, Mr. Justice Yacoub. Uh, there were two American lawyers deeply versed in the US Constitution, one of them uh, from the American Civil Liberties Union one of them from Brigham Young University in Utah. So to, in a, in, a, in a summary, which I immediately made in my head, which turned out to be correct, a leftish New York Jew and a rightish uh, Utah Mormon. And they, uh, uh, there had been a session in which, and sort of apologies to the lawyers present, but a session in which um, uh, English constitutional lawyers in the room uh, more or less said in terms, actually not to me, but to my colleague from Essex, Tony King, who, like me, has recently published a book on the British Constitution, you're not qualified to talk about this because you're not a lawyer. And that really got under my skin. And I got into a huddle with the two Americans over the coffee break, and when I noticed that, the, that my, my now <coughs> colleague and friend, Brett Scharf from Brigham Young, um, had the herbal tea, I uh, helped my hypothesis that he was probably a Mormon. Uh, the left-wing Jew and the right-wing Mormon and I shared a common, uh, fully shared, in, as, as, as far as I could see, a common enthusiasm for codification, for rights protection, for religious freedom, 
and against the attitude that I've just described, uh, which says that uh, you're only entitled to uh, talk about the, the British Constitution if you're an English constitutional lawyer. Uh, in, the, in this world, it seems that there is at least one exception to that, which is if you're an English constitutional lawyer or Werner Bognor, you're allowed to talk about this. <laughs> but if you're Ian McLean or Scott Peterson... So, uh, I'm telling this story in a somewhat malicious way, but it's a, in, intended to illustrate a, a serious point, which is that uh, the British Constitution, as it has been taught in English law schools for over a century, turns out to be, above all, the English Constitution. There is, an, in other words, a Scottish blind spot. And it turns out to be intellectually incoherent in a way which is connected with that same Scottish blind spot. And I'm going to illustrate this by uh, talking about um, some, as I say, some implications of taking 1707 seriously. Uh, these implications were brought out in a famous lawsuit, uh, well, famous to the Scots in the room, uh, McCormick v. Lord Advocate in 1953. Um, this was an, an unlikely vehicle for a fundamental constitutional remark <coughs> because it was actually an extremely silly lawsuit. Uh, McCormick, who was John McCormick, the Scottish nationalist leader of, a Scottish nationalist leader of that era, and relevantly the father of the late Neil McCormick, who is my guru in these matters, Neil and I saw entirely eye to eye. Um, he and a friend had, uh, s had sued the Lord Advocate, the Chief Legal Officer in Scotland, um, on the basis of the title of the Queen. Queen Elizabeth is Elizabeth I of Scotland, and their complaint was that uh, it was a breach of the Act of Union that uh, she should be titled Elizabeth II rather than Elizabeth II and I. Um, well, they lost the main part of their case very easily because the court found with no difficulty at all that this was itself a matter covered by the royal prerogative, not by statute. And if she chose to call herself Elizabeth II. There was nothing her subjects could do to, uh, to prevent that. I, I think that's a summary of the main holding in McCormick. But uh, the obiter, as lawyers say, in other words, by the way remarks of the judge, I think are devastating, and I'll come to those in a minute. But then I present to you the paradox that I started with. If all this trouble about conventional constitutionalism is caused by the Scots, and if Scotland leaves within the next year, will the pressure, such as it is, for codification of the UK Constitution go away? And correspondingly, if Scotland stays, will there be pressure of a different sort towards formal federalism? So, for this purpose, at least for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I propose to be a Marxist because uh, I think that the, the late uh, John Griffith, uh, a law professor from LSE, um, states so uh, cogently um, a very useful Marxist, and when I say realist, I mean realist in the sense that international relations people speak. Um, the Constitution is what happens, okay? Uh, the people talk about, I, I, what I think was in Griffith's mind when he said that was that People talk about principles of the Constitution, but what they're actually talking about is, well, if you're a Marxist, is their material interest or the material interest of the class of which they're part. This may not be entirely correct. In fact, it is not entirely correct, but it may be closer to correct than the opposite view. 
And I wish to illustrate that by um, analyzing the arguments of the central figure in what I shall call the old constitution, Professor A.V. Dicey, uh, would be very familiar to uh, any lawyers here, but um, even PPEists may have got a glancing uh, acquaintanceship with, possibly, in different eras. Okay, some have. At least one, one, one person has nodded to save my blushes. Uh, well, Dicey's view of the English Constitution has been fundamental to lawyers' interpretation. I want to show that it's fundamentally incoherent, and I want to link it, as I said a moment ago, to the McCormick case and the remarks of Lord President Cooper in 1953. Okay, I'll leave that slide up. Um, I won't read it out because um, Stephen Sedley, in a book review, in fact it's a review of Werner Bogdanor's New British Constitution, says in eight lines oops, what um, I devoted about half of an entire book to. Uh, namely the demolition of Professor A.V. Dicey. Um, so I, I guess in, in, in connection with my allying myself with the avowedly Marxist John Griffith in the last slide, I should say, uh, again, for we might amuse the lawyers among you, that if you Google Stephen Sedley, which I did to get this quote, uh, the second phrase which is offered to you by Google is Stephen Sedley, communist. So, Stephen, and this is Lord Justice Sedley, now retired, uh, a well-known lefty lawyer, you may say, uh, on the subject of A.V. Dicey, and he's either praising what we say in this, what I say in this book, because um, we talked about it a bit, or he's independently come to the same view. So, uh, Dicey maintained that the fundamental principles of the British Constitution were parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. Uh, a slight problem comes in the first sentence because are these two wholly consistent with one another? Uh, if, Parliament, if Parliament is truly sovereign, then it can make retrospective legislation, in which case where does the rule of law stand? If the rule of law is truly sovereign, then Parliament cannot make retrospective legislation, in which case where does parliamentary sovereignty stand? So that's kind of an initial difficulty, but it's not the one I propose to deal with. Uh, the one I propose to deal with is set out by Sedley in the second half of this quote. Dicey's book on um, uh, the British Constitution, his main book on the British Constitution was first published in 1885, in which he sets out a principle of unfettered parliamentary sovereignty or supremacy. Parliament may do anything except bind its successor, because the next parliament is also a parliament and so it can do anything. Okay, well, but now bear that phrase in mind. If Parliament can do anything except bind its successor, one of the things it cannot do, or if it does, it cannot have any meaning, is pass a statute such as the Union with Scotland Act 1706, which contains, because it was the product of bargaining between Scottish and English negotiators in treaty negotiations, it contains a number of provisions which say that such and such must be protected forever. <coughs> And among the things that, per the Act of Union 1706, the, the, the third document in this Troika, says must be protected forever, are the true Protestant religion in Scotland and the Scottish education and court systems. Now, that's all very well. Dicey's legal doctrine says that 
you can say these things in an act of parliament, but of course they, have, they can have no binding force because a, a future parliament could simply repeal the act of union. And in one sense, he's obviously right. It could happen next year, or well, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be next year, but in 2016, the UK, if, if the Scottish vote is yes, then the UK, vote, UK parliament will pass an act, among other things, repealing the act of union 1707. However, Dicey also held passionate political views. And in fact, on his own free statement in a letter, which, which, which I quote in my constitution book, he says, uh, he freely admits that on the matter of home rule, he says, I am a fanatic. He's, and he says to the um, conservative politician, Walter Long, it is a matter on which more fanaticism would be helpful. I have to say I do not agree with Dicey on that last point. Um, Dicey was um, fanatically in favor of the union of Britain and Ireland remaining for all time. First edition of um, uh, British Constitution was published 1885. First Home Rule Bill proposed by W.E. Gladstone uh, is uh, uh, proposed in 1886 and in saying in his in opening speeches on the bill that um, Parliament the UK the Imperial Parliament as it was called at the time is entitled to set up a subordinate legislature in Ireland uh, Gladstone in his second reading speech turned to uh, uh, the, 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 the new constitutional book by Professor Dicey which says that Parliament is sovereign Therefore, Parliament is perfectly entitled to pass this bill which I am proposing. Uh, Dicey was immediately infuriated. My view is that Gladstone had him absolutely banged to rights. Uh, but Dicey published a succession of, uh, of um, tracts, polemics, each one more strident than the, than the previous, with titles such as um, uh, England's Case Against Home Rule and A Fool's Paradise and so on. I've discussed them in detail. Uh, Stephen Sedley um, gives you a more concise version, in which he tried to maintain that um, uh, such uh, a thing as granting home rule to Ireland would be a fundamental breach of the British Constitution, in which case um, uh, uh, I, I entirely agree with Sedley's summary, and especially after December of 1910, when uh, the uh, liberal government with Irish support held a majority in the Commons um, and it was clear that the main item on the agenda after the Parliament Act 1911 ensured that Home Rule could be enacted without Lord's consent was that Home Rule would be enacted without Lord's consent and Dicey was an active part of the I think conspiracy is not too strong a, a word to ensure that the will of the elected House of Parliament was not carried. And he got some rather weak-willed people, such as King George V and his advisers, on side. So, um, like Lord Justice Sedley, I, I assert that Dicean constitutional theory is incoherent. And here is why it's specifically incoherent uh, in relation to Scotland. This is uh, Lord President Cooper, the senior Scottish judge of the day, as I say, this is speaking obiter in McCormick, uh, and some have suggested that the reason he was able to speak so frankly was that nothing hung on it. Uh, the case had been dismissed, 
he, he, his remarks here begin, but lest this case should go further, I make the following remarks. Uh, nevertheless, I think you cannot fault the logic of what Cooper says here. The treaty and associated legislation contains some clauses which expressly reserve powers of subsequent modification, and other clauses which either contain no such power or ex emphatically exclude subsequent alteration by declaration that the provision shall be fundamental and unalterable in all times coming, as indeed it does. Uh, and he goes on to make this lethal remark, not possible to reconcile with elementary canons of statutory construction. The adoption by the English constitutional theorists, and we all know who he means there, of the same attitude to these markedly different types of provision. So to give you an illustration, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, at, uh, Article 2, uh, well, and therefore uh, Section 2 as it now stands of the Act of Union 1706-1707 uh, refers to the true Protestant religion. Article 3 of the uh, and uh, Section 3 of the Act also refers to the true Protestant religion. The reference in Section 2 is to the Church of Scotland. The reference in Section 3 is to the Church of England. And both are given constitutional protection as the state church. This is a political bargain, and it makes eminent sense uh, in the context of 1707. It is also still in force, and so there are, I maintain, established churches in both Scotland and England. Um, in terms of political theory or philosophy, it's a complete nonsense. Surely at most one Protestant religion can be true. Uh, Peter disagrees, and so we can, we can have a discussion. And Jeremy disagrees. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll uh, mark that one down for possible refutation later. I assert that at most one Protestant religion can be true, but uh, the uh, uh, Act of Union says otherwise, and this is one of the constitutional entrenchments that the Scottish negotiators thought that they were building in in the Union negotiations of 1707. So, if... I've made my case, I could, and if I've not made my case, I'm willing to attempt to make it at very much greater length, uh, that the Dicean tradition of parliamentary supremacy is incoherent, and the problem, the, the wonder is not that people still maintain it, as so much as that anybody could have thought after 1913 that it had any coherence at all. Uh, so if the Constitution is what, is what happens, what is happening? And it seems to me that two relevant things are happening, and they're not wholly compatible. And I, I list them here as demands for popular sovereignty and demands for rights entrenchment. So, um, if the doctrine that Parliament is sovereign, even if even if it has some technical uh, value for lawyers, and I don't dispute that it may have some technical value for lawyers, as a normative doctrine as to why you and I should obey the laws, it seems to be to have been emptied a century ago by Dicey's self-contradiction. Uh, if Parliament is not sovereign, what is? Well, here again, the Scots bring something to the table, or at least some Scots do, uh, and here I refer I'm, here I am following McCormick Jr. Uh, and he was he was a he was a member of the SNP and indeed he helped draft uh, a constitution for Scotland 
which is sitting there, I think it will not be, it may be the basis of the Constitution which will be drafted if the people vote yes. Um, but here's one of the scholars, not, not one of the extreme ones, but he's one of the scholars associated with the view that uh, the Scottish answer to who is sovereign is not Parliament, but the people. And there are some old historic documents which can give some credence to that claim. The more romantic uh, Scottish nationalists refer to the Declaration of Arbroath of 1320, which I've not put up on screen. But in 1320, uh, Scotland has confirmed its independence by defeating the English at Bannockburn. And so some of us thought that um, Alex would set the referendum for Bannockburn Day next year, 6th of June, but he chose not to. Um, in Scotland, uh, you remember your, away, your home wins rather than your away defeats. And so Bannockburn is celebrated in Scotland. Flodden, 1513, is not much mentioned. At any rate, in 1320, um, Scotland having confirmed its independence under you know, the warrior king Robert the Bruce, the, uh, a bunch of people who, who identified themselves by the title Communitas Regni Scotiorum, the community of the realm of Scotland, wrote to the Pope to say, recognize us please and not the English claim to be uh, kings of Scotland. And this is famous in some nationalist circles for a statement which is translated as, for as so long as 100 of us shall remain alive, we shall never consent to the domination of the English. But what Neil McCormick and some other legal uh, scholars found more interesting was another statement in the Declaration of Arbroath, which says that, I, I, I paraphrase in modern language, Robert Bruce has done a jolly good job, but he is king by our consent, and if he, uh, puts, a, if he puts a foot wrong, meaning, I assume, that if he were to in, engage in a future treaty with England, then he's out. He is our king, we made him king, you know, not God, not, not a previous parliament, but we did. So some see the declaration of Arbroath as a claim to popular sovereignty. More seriously and more defensibly, the claim of right, 1688, an important document. And I'll say that um, um, in the, un, under the Labour government, because um, a good friend of some of us was a, was, um, a special advisor to Prime Minister Brown, uh, I was in a position to, um, well, I was asked to supply jokes for his speeches. This didn't work very well. <laughs> but I did get the opportunity to look at a draft of his, the Brown government's green paper on the Constitution of July of 2007, which, if it had gone anywhere, would have been a very interesting document. And um, although he didn't need any prompting from me, uh, Prime Minister Brown ensured that in a statement of the prior rights claims that had been made, this, that document, that green paper, not only mentioned the Bill of Rights 1688-9, but it also mentioned the Claim of Right Act 1688, the Scottish equivalent, except that it's not an exact equivalent. In both Scotland and in England, the King had run away, King James II and VII. Uh, both Scotland and England convened convention parliaments uh, to offer the crown, and they offered it, of course, to the same person, or same couple, William and Mary, uh, in, but their grounds for doing so were significantly different, and in the Scottish claim of rights, unlike the English Bill of Rights, there is a specific claim that we, 
the people of Scotland. Our, our, our convention parliament it represents the people of Scotland, and we, the people of Scotland, offer the throne to William and Mary. So this is a claim of popular sovereignty made at a key constitutional moment, and that claim is repeated from time to time, and it's repeated in constitutional documents, uh, in most recently last Tuesday, in the Scottish Government's white paper. Uh, it's a claim to popular sovereignty. And it seems to me that that's the only sovereignty claim that can be properly made. I'm sure it doesn't seem that way to everybody in the room, so that's another one for future discussion. Um, because it seems to me basic, and I know that this, the following statement does not, is not, does not seem right to everybody, um, that if a claim is made that Parliament has authority to make laws for us, that claim has to be grounded in popular consent. I can see no other way in which the claim can be legitimised. So I say, and <clears throat> when I prepared these slides, I didn't know that the First Church of States Commission would be sitting in the second row. Um, so nevertheless, I will say, it might be nice if we elected our legislature. We have, by Dicean theory, which in this regard I, I follow, uh, Parliament comprises three houses, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the monarchy of which one is elected. Um, I wait for an explanation of why I should um, accept the authority of the unelected houses. Uh, specifically, uh, <laughs> sorry Andres, but I will say it, um, as a Scot and a Quaker, I, find I, can, I can find nothing less than outrage at the fact that 26 members of a single religious denomination, which is established in England only, uh, have a right to make laws binding me as a Scot and a Quaker, and all of you in the room who, who, um, who are anything other than, than, than Anglicans. Uh, and in case people think this is a purely theoretical worry, I point out, point out in the book, and in another book which Scott and I have written, uh, that in 2010, in a almost exactly the same week as this Wilton Park conference that I started out by talking about, uh, the House of Lords debated the Equality Bill of the dying Labour government. Uh, the bishops turned out in some force uh, to weaken one of the anti-discrimination provisions that, had be that was in the bill in other words, to widen the scope within which the uh, Church of England was free in pursuit of, 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 of uh, you know, for, for theological reasons, not for arbitrary reasons, but was free to do things which, had it been a secular employer, it would not have been free to do in relation to gay and lesbian employees or would-be employees. So bishops can be crucial. They were last crucial in uh, March of 19, 2010. They were not crucial in the recent um, same-sex marriage debate in the House of Lords because uh, the, uh, uh, those who are in favour of that won by an overwhelming majority in both houses. Nevertheless, um, uh, 14 of them attended in the House, of whom nine, I think I would, I, for sure, I would not have objected in the slightest if they had voted against the provisions of the bill, but that's not what they do, did they voted not to give the bill a hearing because that was the motion before the House. And that just, I'm sorry, that just seems to me quite intolerable. But um, beyond bishops, here's the fundamental statement. 
and it's made by Colonel Thomas Rainborough in the Putney debates in October 1647. Many of you know the story, but um, for those who don't, this was a, uh, a remarkable sort of town meeting but, um, among uh, the officers of Cromwell's army, the, royal, the parliamentary side having won in the main, uh, main phase of the English Civil War. Uh, they, f they fell in a very earnest way to discussing what do we do now and here is this statement by Thomas Rainborough which we now think echoes through the centuries. Uh, it seems to me to be self-evidently correct. Um, probably most of you when you did in PPE political theory or um, introduction to politics did not come across Rainborough but you all came across Locke. And uh, it seems to me that Rainborough, writing 40 years earlier than Locke, says every relevant thing that Locke says in the second treatise and says it in a couple of sentences. So why do we celebrate Locke rather than Rainborough? I think for contextual reasons. The shorthand transcript of the Putney debates was only rediscovered by a historian in the archives of Worcester College here in the 1890s. And even then, I think it was another 100 years before Putney debates enter popular culture, when I, I googled the phrase poorest he just this week to get, to get uh, this, that's, that's modern spelling, but uh, to get that quote, um, I find that Rainborough's speech was, within the last week, was retweeted by the history of Parliament. So I think that's a change in attitude to the levellers. Uh, can I go, no, previous will do. So, um, it seems to me that Colonel Rainborough's challenge has to be met and that uh, although it's fashionable to say, well, House of Lords reform is now dead as the dodo uh, because it was defeated in this parliament, I predict that whoever forms the next government, it will come, the issue of the Lords will come back to bite the next government because for sure the Lords are emboldened by the partial reforms of the late 20th century, and they will cause trouble for the next government, whatever the composition of that government. Furthermore, the House of Lords are on what uh, property lawyers call an upward-only review. <laughs> the House of Lords can only get bigger under its current composition because the incoming Prime Minister, uh, every time a government changes, by construction the new government is of a different partisan composition to the previous one. The new Prime Minister wants to rebalance the House of Lords, that means adding more people from that side. Government changes again, more people will be added from the other side. Uh, and so this is a process that has no limit, it is unsustainable, uh, therefore the next government will have to do something about the House of Lords, and it would be nice if they elected it. The Scottish angle I refer to here was only the one that I mentioned earlier, that if you believe Declaration of Arbroath, claim and right and so on, then you believe that there is an embedded claim for popular sovereignty. Quite separately, um, a lot of the current pressure for codification comes from those who believe that uh, some form of rights entrenchment is desirable. So this might be something along the model of the U.S. Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution, and it's worth pointing out, many of you will know, but some may not, that the U.S. Bill of Rights is in part, well, it, it, it's interactive with British constitutional practice. Uh, some of the phrases, uh, for instance, the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment comes direct from the wording of the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Others 
other sections of the US Bill of Rights, I have argued in other work, some of it jointly with Scott, comes more more likely from the Scottish, from the Claim of Right Act. Um, and there were people there in Philadelphia who knew about Scotland, two in particular, James Madison and James Wilson. So um, the idea of rights entrenchment was not born anew in 1787. It was already there in the air for the, uh, the, the framers of the US Constitution to hold on to. And the, the right that uh, is of greatest interest to us, which we're writing about in other work, is the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it goes on to give entrenched rights to uh, free speech. Um, <clears throat> now, this dialogue, as you all know, has been, in some sense, domesticated. Uh, the UK has been a signatory, indeed it not only a signatory, it was the, uh, the, the regime which played most, the, most, the greatest role in setting up the European Convention on Human Rights, the Council of Europe, I'm sorry, which, whose instrument is the European Convention on Human Rights, which is enforced by the European Court of Human Rights. This was essentially a project of the post-war uh, uh, British Labour government, continued uh, the change of government in 1951 by the British Conservatives. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill made great speeches on the subject, although he did not, he was a bit more cautious when it came to um, ratifying, as indeed was uh, Ernest Bevin, the Foreign Secretary in the Labour government. Nevertheless, it was the British who set up the Council of Europe. It was the British largely, British lawyers, who largely drew up the terms of the European Convention on Human Rights. The European Convention on Human Rights was domesticated <coughs> by the Human Rights Act 1998. As you all know, now I, uh, I'll, I won't go back to Rainborough just yet. In fact, I don't need to go back to Rainborough. I've got to say, I have no more to say about Rainborough. Um, as you all know, against those demands for rights entrenchment, there's a strong political pushback Interestingly, and in only the last week, joined by our legal pushback from some eminent judges, and this may, it may come up in conversation shortly, what these judges, or indeed in Jeremy's forthcoming session, uh, what, what the issue is between the pro- and anti-rights entrenchment uh, camps. Nevertheless, uh, I think uh, that, here, here I'm being bold and risk-taking, the Human Rights Act is probably here to say uh, UK membership of the European Convention is almost certainly here to stay. Um, this is leading in some, the most important people here it seems to be are judges, in some judges' uh, actions to the internalisation of the European Convention, to the domestic courts acting as if they were uh, directly carrying out the um, provisions of the Convention on Human Rights, which in case anybody is not aware, uh, covers the same classic individual uh, right, right <clears throat> rights to freedom of religion, rights to against torture, rights to freedom of speech, uh, freedom of association. But here's the problem. Popular and sovereignty and rights protection are not wholly compatible. Just as I said at the beginning that Dicey's two central claims of parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law seem to me to be not wholly compatible. So I have to say that you cannot have 
complete popular sovereignty and complete rights protection because what rights matter? Well, in any time and place, it's the rights of unpopular groups, um, asylum seekers, um, uh, people who belong to religious or, or anti-religious minorities, gay and lesbian people, and so on. The, if you look at the groups, uh, Roma, you look at the groups who have made rights claims and whose rights claims have been upheld in the ECHR regime, they are typically people who have lost in some domestic forum, whether it's a court, a legislature, or an executive, uh, because they're very unpopular and the things they stand for are very unpopular and popular majorities uh, don't like foreigners and they very particularly don't like Roma foreigners. And so, for instance, they can say uh, uh, if, if you know, Romanians are caught begging, they're, they're back to Romania. That's not an ECHR issue, it's an ECJ issue. European Court of Justice is quite clearly contrary to uh, the uh, European treaties, but nevertheless the current Prime Minister feels uh, not only entitled, but you know, strengthened in saying that. That's just, that just happens to be this week's example. Next week's example might be something else. So political parties, um, it's a strong current in the Conservative Party. It's also present in the Labour Party. It's least present in the Lib Dem Party, but perhaps they don't matter anymore. Uh, is against uh, rights entrenchment. It's a pushback against the ECHR regime, as everybody in this room knows. It's driven by fear of UKIP and the Daily Mail, and these, it, these are well-grounded fears. The, the uh, political sentiments, the anti-immigrant sentiments in particular, anti-asylum seeker, uh, uh, anti-foreign prisoner sentiments that are expressed, anti-prisoner voting, which you'll hear about in the next session, are well-grounded. Uh, there's no doubt about that. They're grounded in a majority of public opinion. Rights are, to summarise in a sentence, inherently counter-majoritarian. If they weren't, you wouldn't need them, I assert. Should the UK have an entrenched Bill of Rights? Well, you won't be surprised to, think, to know that I think the, the UK should. It's also very well known that Jeremy is, to say the least, highly sceptical about that. So we can have a discussion either in this session or the next. But I think that the that political demands for rights protection are not going to go away. Finally then, and I am drawing to a close, uh, return to the, par the self-imposed paradox that I started with. I grounded my case for the incoherence of Dyson uh, parliamentary supremacism partly on Scotland, but Scotland may leave. Does that mean that pressure for codification of the, of the constitution of what will then be the rest of the UK goes away? Dicey's contradiction in part rests in his uh, uh, unsustainable attitude to the supposedly unrepealable clauses of the Act of Union. However, it seems to me that the moves both to popular sovereignty and to rights protection are essentially unaffected by whether or not Scotland is, remains part of the UK. And uh, popular sovereigntists will continue to argue for an elected legislature. Rights protectors will continue to want the UK to stay in the ECHR. Uh, many, but as we've been learning this week, not all, senior UK judges are rights protecting, so I think neither of these issues will go away. Finally, if Scotland stays, does uh, the UK become a formally federal state? Um, <coughs> we tend to think so. First point is that in some cases the UK is already a federal state 
but most of the time nobody even notices except, Scot except Scott's lawyers. So in the controversy which our other current book is about, which is uh, legal marriage, uh, we are currently in a world in which the UK Parliament has legislated, has enacted the possibility of same-sex marriage. It isn't yet in place because of regulations requiring to be written, but that has been enacted for England and Wales. Marriage law is different in Scotland, always has been, and it's part of the <coughs> Scots private law that was protected under the 1707 treaty. And so uh, the Scottish Parliament is actually discussing same-sex marriage in Scotland as we speak. Uh, there seems to be a comfortable parliamentary majority for it, but nevertheless, it is a fully devolved matter. It's also devolved in Northern Ireland, where nobody in this room who knows anything about Northern Ireland will be surprised to hear that there are no plans to introduce same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. So, uh, for certain, this is something which differs in what you might describe as already a federal way in, in this one policy domain. And there, are, there are other policy areas not as, not as currently prominent in which the law differs across the three jurisdictions in the UK. But a move to more formal federalism might, would be likely to start, I think, from uh, tax and spend issues. And a move in that direction is already underway, although, again, um, nobody except the sad nerds and anoraks has, no has noticed, uh, as from you, you gather from Scott's introduction, that I am one of those sad nerds and anoraks who was involved in uh, helping to draw up the financial regime which forms part of the Scotland Act 2012. The Scotland Act 2012 is what will come into force if uh, Scots vote no next year. And what it does is devolves uh, 10, pence or 10 pence in the pound of income tax, takes it away from the UK government, the UK Parliament, and hands the tax power to the Scottish Parliament uh, with an instruction that you have to set a rate. Uh, if you don't set a rate, then public services in Scotland stop tomorrow. Uh, you can set a rate the same as at present, but that is associated with a, a, a known and predictable level of public spending. If you want to spend more, you have to tax more. If you want to tax less, you have to spend less. And that is a move to make the Scottish Parliament fiscally responsible. The Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish assemblies are uh, a monument, uh, and I'm, this is not a party political point because all parties are equally guilty. They're a monument to fiscal irresponsibility at the moment. They spend, but they do not tax. That's a very pleasant po uh, political place to be if you're a politician in one of these parliaments. You, you enjoy opening things and giving people benefits. Uh, you don't enjoy levying the tax that pays for these things. Uh, well, uh, the Scotland Act, if Scotland votes no, and of course independence in and of itself, if Scotland votes yes, will make the Scottish Parliament fiscally responsible. And that seems to me to be an unambiguously good thing. But if Scotland votes no, that is in itself a push, I think, towards federalism. Marginal tax aligned with marginal spending. The Scottish Parliament, as I say, will have to grow up. I'm speaking very bluntly here. Um, but I think that will help to make it more legitimate. And we know from survey data that it is already more trusted in Scotland than is the UK Parliament. And so I, I envisage here, and this is my final comment, uh, UK federalism emerging rather gradually, as it has in Canada for the last century and a half, 
the Canadian Constitution, <coughs> sorry, what Canadians call the Canadian Constitution and Brits call the British North America Act, 1867, um, was only rather grudgingly federal, but in fact Canada has over the century and a half become a much more formally federal country, and indeed the Kalman Commission's idea is, was directly derived from Canadian practice. Canadians call it vacating tax points. So the feds vac vacate so many points in the dollar of income tax, and it's for the provinces to set a rate. So I see, if the answer is no, I see Scotland, an agnostic about Wales and Northern Ireland, but I see Scotland at least becoming more like a Canadian province uh, than like the devolved regime that it is now. And I'll stop there. <laughs>